Hello, and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging market executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools, and proprietary data that help power their emerging market business strategies. The focus of today's podcast is a discussion with FSG's lead sub-Saharan African analyst, Anna Rosenberg, about her recent research trip to Southern Africa and a recent report we published on Zimbabwe. My name is Richard Leggett, and I'm the CEO of Frontier Strategy Group. Anna is joining me today from FSG's London office. As a reminder, this research and all of your content is available via our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com or via your FSG iPad application. Anna, welcome. Hi, Rich. Pleasure talking to you today. I've been looking forward to this discussion, having closely followed your travels over the trip. And to set the stage for the discussion, I thought maybe you could just provide us with a quick overview of the trip in terms of your itinerary, uh, the number of meetings you had, the type of people you were meeting with. Sure. So I went to Southern Africa for about three weeks. And specifically, I went to Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique and South Africa. And the reason for this trip was our upcoming research series on doing business in Southern Africa. And that's because a lot of our clients are currently thinking about expansion within Sub-Saharan Africa. And Southern Africa is a region they have generally neglected and only served by distributors out of South Africa. But South Africa has not been doing very well and is now the third year that it's actually underperforming. So it's time to reassess that strategy. So that's why I went to the region, really, to find out about these uh, developments uh, there and how companies can most successfully serve Southern African markets. I had a very action-packed agenda, about 35 meetings, and I met with FSG clients, uh, many local and international business leaders, distributors, politicians, and journalists. And um, in South Africa, we also hosted a business breakfast meeting with about 20 of our clients who are based there. Sounds like a very exciting trip and no doubt a lot of great insights. So why don't we do that and dig into each country? Uh, But before I go uh, into the details of each country, I thought maybe there's some quick headlines you can share for each of the countries that you visited. Yes, of course. Uh, It was indeed very interesting and every country was very different. So in Zimbabwe, I think the headline would be that the economy is in crisis, but there's definitely a feeling of change in the air. In Mozambique, I I would probably say that the opportunity is overrated. For Zambia, um, it's, it's a high potential country, but the country is currently at a crossroad. And lastly, well, South Africa, there's nothing else to say than same old, same old, I'm afraid. Let's dig into details now. Let's start with Zimbabwe, given that you just recently launched a in-depth report on the country. And Zimbabwe has a very bad reputation because of Robert Mugabe and also because it's just not a very friendly place historically to do business. So what motivated you to take a closer look at the country? Well, speaking with insiders, I had a feeling for a while now that the message we hear in the Western media about Zimbabwe is somehow incomplete and misleading, particularly as I had spoken to investors who called Zimbabwe one of Africa's best kept secrets. So I was really intrigued that there may be a big story here that we're missing and a big opportunity for Western multinationals. And I really wanted to go and find out for myself. And so what did you find? Well, I did find out that there was something that we were missing and and, uh, Zimbabwe was probably the biggest surprise to me in, in my entire career focusing on Africa because when I arrived there, I, I certainly wasn't expecting to land in one of the most developed countries I had ever visited in Africa, aside from South Africa. But that was really just the beginning of surprises. What did you find the atmosphere like? You mentioned that there felt like there was a, a, an air of change in the air, but what, what, what was it like on the ground? 
Well, when I arrived, it was just um, days before Mugabe had his 92nd birthday, and there were still billboards lining the streets announcing his 90th birthday with a slogan, With Age Comes Vision, which was actually quite, um, quite funny in a way. But my arrival actually coincided with some high-level government reshuffles, which entirely changed the outlook on Mugabe's potential successors. So you could really feel that Mugabe himself was, was preparing for his exit from politics, and that was what you could feel everywhere and the, the newspapers were full of it and, and everyone was talking about it. And that's a trend that we actually discuss quite in depth in the report you just mentioned. We, we look at potential successes there and what their leadership could mean for, for business. Do you see uh, anybody emerging as a clear frontrunner to be Mugabe's successor? Well, it, it used to be Joyce Mujuru, who used to be the former vice president, but somehow she fell out of favor and, and was basically fired from her position. And uh, now the former minister of justice, um, Emerson Manangakwa, is the new vice president. And he currently seems to be, well, positioned to take over um, once Mugabe exits from his current role. He's pretty much a hardliner, so I don't think his appointment would change in any way. Uh, the Zimbabwean politicians do business. And, and govern the country. Another potential successor is Mugabe's wife, Grace Mugabe. And that's quite of a surprising development because she really just emerged out of, out of nowhere onto the political arena. And she's not very well liked by leading business people within Zimbabwe. She's, she's liked by local SMEs. But if she would take over, um, there wouldn't be much of a change either because it, it would be pretty much politics, the Mugabe way continuation of that. I thought it was interesting. You also met the leading opposition politician and former Prime Minister Morgan Zwangarai. Uh, were you not concerned to meet with the opposition uh, in Zimbabwe? Well, to be honest, I was advised that by the time I would meet Swangarai, I, I would probably be, be followed. But, but to be honest, I was able to meet him uh, quite spontaneously and at his house privately. So I don't think anyone noticed. But I did meet with a few individuals who were a bit queasy about what they were saying in public. So political oppression is definitely still part of daily life there. Is there a real uh, opposition movement? Like what is the current state of opposition in Zimbabwe right now? Unfortunately, it's currently non-existent. Tsvangarai lost momentum in, in 2013 when he lost the elections. And by now, the opposition has splintered as, as everyone is trying to take over power as Mugabe prepares for his exit. So there is unfortunately no real strong opposition party. It remains to be seen what Joyce Mujuru, the former vice president, is going to do now that she was fired from the party. But for the time being, no strong opposition in sight. And the country is likely going to continue to be governed by the Sanupuyev the ruling party. And then if we look at the economy, you mentioned that uh, Zimbabwe's economy is in crisis. Can we talk a little bit more about what's driving that? Sure. So Zimbabwe has been repeatedly exposed to economic challenges since it gained independence from British uh, colonial rule in 1980. The country um, had experienced a decade of hyperinflation from the late 1990s to about 2009. And that really fundamentally weakened uh, an economy that was at the time already damaged due to some reform in the agricultural sector. Then the government abolished the Zimbabwe dollar and introduced the U.S. dollar in 2009. And that helped growth accelerate. However, the dollar, while it was good for that period of time, it also had a lot of problems with it. And that is that Zimbabwean exports became very uncompetitive and expensive. So what happened in 2013, elections took place and, and because Sanupiev won them again and the opposition was voted out, and there was a lot of uncertainty regarding policies. So investment 
kind of slowed down dramatically. So that really started the beginning of, of what we're seeing today because um, we have seen a lot of businesses close. Since 2011, approximately 4,000 businesses have closed. And it's, it's quite a dramatic situation at the moment. But interestingly, this crisis is opening up opportunities for companies. Yeah, I was going to ask where the opportunities are, because so far what I've heard is there's not a strong opposition, so you potentially could have the you know, continuation of the same policies, uh, even in, a, in an election succession. And then secondly, you've got an economy in crisis. So, so maybe let's talk about where, where you see the opportunities. Exactly. So that's the whole point about Zimbabwe, that the opportunities are very hidden. And uh, it's interesting because one of the reasons we're seeing a few opportunities emerge is that restrictions on foreign businesses are actually very quietly being softened right now. As you know, Zimbabwe has a few policies that alienate investors, such as the indigenization policy, which requires 50% of each company to be locally owned. However, uh, very recently, at the beginning of the year, they have amended this law very quietly, and the implementation is is now decided on a case-by-case basis. So it's not anymore a requirement. So actually, there are a lot of exceptions to that rule. And, and that's because both the local private sector and most importantly, policymakers, they very well know that they depend on foreign investment for the economy not to implode. And so that's why it's actually a very attractive time for companies to go in and, and make demands. They can negotiate preferential deals, both with the government and the private sector. And then, of course, they can buy assets very, very cheaply right now. And that's really quite an attractive proposition because eventually Zimbabwe is likely going to emerge again. It has historically quite a strong consumer market. It's one of the wealthier markets within Southern Africa overall. So having those assets now that they're cheaply priced would potentially offer quite a lot of opportunities a few years down the line. And then there was a second thought about why why there's economic opportunity. Oh, yes, indeed. The, the factor is also that the economy is undergoing a dramatic change. So as I mentioned just now, Zimbabwe has a relatively high level of development and also a well-educated talent force. But it is now going through a regression and its uh, relatively formalized economy is in fact informalizing because informal small businesses are taking over formal business structures from all of these businesses that, that closed. And what this means is that Zimbabwe is becoming increasingly like a typical African country in which a lot of informal business activity actually takes place on the street. And that is opening a lot of opportunities for companies that thrive in this type of environment. Can you give us some examples of companies that thrive where the informal economy starts to take over? Yeah, I think um, the most uh, obvious one is probably Unilever. They make a lot of profit from selling smaller units of items in, in tabletops, in markets, in the streets of emerging markets. So in fact, the company is right now in the process of shifting manufacturing away from South Africa to Zimbabwe to take advantage of, well, the well-educated workforce and also the central geographic position of the country. And they're also avoiding all the labor strikes that plague South Africa right now. And currently, Zimbabwe already accounts for the majority of the company's sales in the Southern Africa region, when you exclude South Africa. And uh, Unilever is very confident that demand will increase in Zimbabwe. Another interesting example of a company um, really thriving in this kind of environment is a telecommunications operator called Econet Wireless. They are expanding their um, mobile banking platform that basically provides financial access to all of the Zimbabweans that don't have access to financial services. And they are taking advantage of the country's weakening formal banking sector because 
because a lot of banks have also closed. But what's most important uh, about Econet really is that they are devising um, a platform that allows Zimbabweans to deal with the, with the problems that are related to the country's multiple currency system. The country currently has about nine different currencies in circulation, which makes it very difficult to get cash change for items that, that are cheaper than $1. So basically everything costs $1, which is very expensive. And usually people used to pay change with sweets, for example. But now Econet, Econet, by providing this mobile platform, allows traders to pay things, the right price for things on the street via the mobile phone. Micropayments. Exactly. So if you think uh, about industries that should thrive in Zimbabwe over the next several years, it sounds like consumer goods, uh, maybe some infrastructure. Are there other industries that uh, should benefit from the Zimbabwe hidden opportunities? Well, I certainly think that consumer goods is is one, um, and it's probably more targeted towards the low-value, high-volume kind of products that that do very well in populous markets such as Ethiopia and Nigeria. I do also think that um, infrastructure is important in terms of the development, and we will probably see a lot of Zimbabweans starting to construct more houses based on the informal sector. And we're already seeing that a lot of cement companies, um, like Lafarge Cement, a big French company, are actually stocking up their production capacity to meet um, expected demand in the future. There's also a big market to service the Zimbabwean diaspora. Um, So for example, MasterCard is also providing um, payment platforms for the diaspora to bring money back home uh, into Zimbabwe, which is quite an innovative approach. But I also think keeping in line with that example from MasterCard, technology in general will be a, a sector that should expect quite an uptick in demand, especially as companies, local companies have to find cheaper solutions for local problems. This is great, Anna. Thanks for these fascinating insights. And, and again, I would encourage our listeners to, to read the latest Market Spotlight piece on Zimbabwe because we, we, we barely scratched the surface and there's so much more. But I want to shift gears for a moment in our remaining time and talk briefly about the other markets you visited and maybe uh, give them a couple of minutes each. So let's start with Mozambique. Um, you visited uh, Mozambique as the country is sitting today on the world's largest natural gas reserves. Are you optimistic about the country's prospects? Well, so the country has been growing at a very fast uh, rate in the last 10 years or so due to the fact that it is actually growing from a low base, but also because of well-implemented policy reforms. However, I'm not quite as optimistic about the market as a lot of other companies and also Mozambicans are. Because when I spoke to the central bank governor in the country and other business representatives, I realized that the country is relying too strongly on its natural gas resources, but hadn't really caught up with the fact that oil prices had been falling quite dramatically and that investment into exploration activity is going down. So currently, all all the hope is, is built on the natural gas sector, but investment is far from certain. And that, of course, is is critical for the country to really unlock its potential. Also, it has some serious political problems. It had a very long civil war, and some challenges resulting from that civil war have not yet been addressed. And every now and then, there are some low-level conflicts which are rising up, which really highlight the country's ongoing potential for volatility as well. Would you feel differently if the oil price wasn't suppressed? Um, I think I would feel similarly about the political risk in the country, which is obviously still there. And I also think that the country has to do a better job at encouraging investment into other sectors of the economy. I think currently the way it's going is that the investment into the natural resource sector is likely going to end up only with the elite and not really benefiting uh, the wider population. So in a way, yes. 
What about Zambia? So Zambia is an interesting market. There's a lot of consumer potential there. And Zambians are spending a lot and they're spending fast. And uh, there's a lot of construction going on. The country definitely has a, an increasing middle class. You can see that there are a lot of malls, people shopping there, going out for dinner. But it relies heavily on copper exports. And um, the sector is not organized very efficiently. And the, the Zambian government is also very populist or has been very populist in the past and has threatened to increase taxes on the mining sector. And the tax increases would have been quite substantial, and they, wouldn't have, they would have made local mining operations unprofitable. So a few mining companies were actually threatening to exit the market. However, when I, when I was there, a new government, a new head of state had just been reinstated. And he seems to be more reasonable. He seems to be um, taking things more seriously and, and discussing the issue with the mining companies. So if the right policy decision are made, Zambia will likely continue on its, on its growth trajectory, but the next few months will be critical and we're going to monitor the market more in depth with our upcoming report on Zambia as well. Let's close with South Africa. Um, you gave the headline that unfortunately not much has changed, but we've also heard recently about xenophobic attacks in the country. Is this a symptom of a, of a broader problem there? Well, yes. South Africa is currently in a deep economic crisis, and I, as I was alluding to earlier, it has been since 2012. Low growth, high unemployment, a depreciating currency, severe problems with power, power shortages. All of these issues are weighing on consumers and businesses, and the outlook is generally gloomy. And the xenophobic attacks are simply a manifestation of the grievances of the unemployed people that have a little hope for the future. I'm looking at the clock. I think we're up against time, Anna, but I wanted to thank you for sharing all of these insights. What can we expect next from you in terms of the research agenda for Sub-Saharan Africa? So we're going to focus on Southern Africa now in the next couple of weeks and months. So the first report, uh, we've discussed it already, is, is our market spotlight on Zimbabwe. We also have a series of blog posts and video blogs in our archive recorded during the trip that basically focus on Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, and, and Mozambique. And we will soon publish uh, market spotlights on Zambia and on Angola. And then we will start our series of doing business in Southern Africa, which will first focus on regional opportunities and uh, reaching customers. And uh, later into the year, we're planning to look uh, a bit more in depth at uh, Mozambique as well. Excellent. Anna, thank you so much for your time. As a reminder, you can speak to Anna or any member of the FSG research team at any time by scheduling via your FSG client relationship director. You can also access all of our sub-Saharan research canon and all of FSG's content on our portal at portal.frontierstrategygroup.com. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance across your emerging market portfolio.